This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So during the service today, we chanted, uh, after the chanting of the Kanzheon um, Sutra, um, the Eno uh, said this dedication. Uh, Kanon Bodhisattva, and Kanon is the Japanese name for Avalokiteshvara, uh, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Uh, Kanon Bodhisattva perceives the cries of the world. This is the dedication to the chant that we had just done. This is who it's the merits of being dedicated to, your merits. And so compassion is shown in all its many forms. She liberates all suffering sentient beings and brings them to great joy. She realizes mind, all beings are one essence. She awakens the heart, and nothing is forsaken. Nothing is forsaken. In reciting the M.A. Juku Kanungyo, we dedicate its merits to Fire Lotus Temple and the Sangha, us, in celebration of the 18th, the 19th anniversary of its founding. We bow in gratitude to those who have given so generously to establish this field of sincere practice. May this temple continue to provide a path of enlightened wisdom for years to come. And may we aspire to manifest compassion for all beings in the Ten Commandments, in Ten Commandments, in the Ten <laughs> Directions. <laughs> Just as an aside, I've been giving some talks uh, via video on uh, the precepts and holding up the Ten Commandments here and the Ten, the actual 16 precepts of the Bodhisattva path, so I kind of slipped in, sorry. <laughs> They're quite different. But the point is, this is the ninth, this day is the 19th anniversary of the founding of this temple. And um, we should pause to appreciate that. Um, there's so much history when I considered, I, I could give this hour and, or most of this hour, and many other hours towards how we're sitting here today. Uh, could actually go back to the time of the Buddha, of course. Um, but just very, very briefly, um, you know, it started in someone's apartment with a group of practitioners and students who practiced at the monastery and who lived in the city, and so they started a sitting group. And then it moved. I keep getting mixed up if it was on 28th or 28th, 23rd or 28th Street in Manhattan <clears throat> to a rented space which I think was mainly used on Sundays, but maybe at other times. Uh, It wasn't well designed to be set up as a Zendo, but it was used. And I visited there, and I was a monastic at the time, and um, was part of that on some occasions. Um, So I have a sense of that space. It was also a building which there were uh, a lot of 
rehearsal performances. So I, I remember one of the characteristics, I remember getting on the small elevator with some very famous actors and going up and down the elevator and, you know, uh, with them, names you would know, um, who were coming there to rehearse. Um, and it grew. Uh, and, um, and then at some point, uh, Daito Roshi asked Miyotai-sensei to um, find a real home. And she did. She dug in. I mean, it's not easy to find a place that works uh, in New York City that uh, both works and somehow is affordable. Um, and so um, in 2000, um, the Mountains of Rivers Order, the Zen Mountain Monastery, really, signed the contract uh, to purchase this place. We purchased it from the YWCA, this building, uh, for then and now is a lot of money, probably a lot more now if, in terms of value, but it's still a relatively limited building in value. <clears throat> um, so it was a big, big deal to... Um, make that commitment financially and to see <clears throat> what would happen. And a lot has happened since 2000. Um, the Sangha has grown. Um, uh, Miyotai eventually left, and that was not necessarily a great set of circumstances. Um, she was <clears throat> that Roshi's partner, and things did not go well for a whole set of complex reasons, and she eventually left. <clears throat> and um, and yet, in the course of her being here, she turned, she took this place from uh, a place that was not designed uh, at all for uh, Zen practice and transformed it into a real temple uh, and uh, inspired the Sangha and um, really gave it the energy and started and is the main person responsible for the life of this temple in that sense. Um, when she left, Shugen uh, Sensei at the time was asked to step into this position full-time, and he did for 10 years, um, and um, brought a disciplined and um, direct sense of teaching based on the, his training and the monastic tradition, and then when he left, Hojin Sensei and I were asked to step in and um, kind of work with the Sangha in a way that um, changing times, changing Sangha and circumstances uh, um, and um, having two teachers here at different times um, would work, would work for the Sangha and would work for uh, us uh, as a viable way to live and to practice and work for the monastics who came down every week, but especially for the Sangha. And so um, I want to bow in gratitude to those who have given so generously, which includes you. And even if you're stepping in here, this building for the first time, you are giving. Your presence here is offering your sense of what's important, at least in these hours and this day, um, 
And through your generosity, uh, we continue and we will continue. Uh, and as always, things change and uh, evolve. And, um, but none of that happens without the Sangha, without each of us in our own individual way and particular way, and therefore jointly practicing together. Uh, and so um, may this temple continue to provide a path of enlightened wisdom for years to come. You know, I considered making a list of all the people that I could remember who were essential to this and to Zen Mountain Monastery along the path, and I I gave up after a few minutes because it would have been pages and pages and still would have left out too many people. Um, Everybody matters. Every contribution matters. And um, that's just the way it is. And every action that we do matters. And so that takes me to the talk today. And this is a talk that in a slightly different form, but pretty much as it is, I gave a couple of weeks ago at the monastery. Uh, We did a workshop on karma. Um, And I wanted to give this talk here because I consider the topic so important, karma. Um, And I'll change it a bit. um, But I... Well... I've already said why. So this is from the Book of Equanimity, case number eight. And I also want to acknowledge that there are some people in the room who have heard a version of this talk before. Um, But, you know, can't hurt to hear it again. (laughs) It's your karma. (laughs) So... This is a very famous koan. It's by Zhang's fox, or in Japanese, Yakujo and the fox. So when Bai Zhang lectured in the hall, there was always an old man who listened to the teaching and then dispersed with the crowd. Bai Zhang then asked him, Who are you? Who's standing there? What are you doing here? The old man said, In antiquity, in the time of the ancient Buddha Kashapa, that's before the Buddha Shakyamuni, I lived on this mountain. And again, I'm adding things. Um, the, the implication, he was the abbot of this monastery in ancient times. In fact, um, one way to understand this koan is he was by Jong in a previous life. I lived on this mountain. A student asked me, does an enlightened person still fall into cause and effect or not? I answered, they do not fall into cause and effect and I fell into a wild fox body for 500 lifetimes. Now I asked the teacher now to say something on my behalf. Bajan said, they do not ignore cause and effect. They do not ignore karma. Another translation is, they are not blind to cause and effect. The old man was greatly enlightened at these words. Now, the case that I just presented, the koan, is um, um, as it's presented in the Book of Equanimity, case number eight. In the Mumankan, it's the second case. Um, and it goes on quite a bit longer, and I'm not going to read it. Um, uh, and there are many points in this koan. And this koan, one of the reasons it's famous is because it's a nanto koan. And nanto koan means difficult to see into. Um, so... 
whatever you walk away with as your understanding of this koan, that probably doesn't have a lot to do with how you'd work with it with a teacher in Dyson, um, to see deeply into what karma is and who you are. Um, and yet it's, it's important to, to look at this koan from any perspective that we can and get whatever we can out of it. Um, and also just in terms of time, uh, generally, when this koan is presented, it's done over two talks. So usually in Sishin, when you can give uh, two talks in a row. And, um... So we live our life to the best of our ability. I mean, we plan. We try and direct our life so that we may be happy and healthy and achieve what we think is important or what we define as personal success. Or perhaps we just go on with whatever's going on, doing our best to move forward to something more satisfying than what we have in the present. Or perhaps we just kind of row in a circle as our life, you know, too timid, afraid, or just stuck in a particular place until something changes. Yet no matter what the plan is, no matter what we achieve, Life is going to bring change. Life is going to bring difficulties. The analogy I used here is it's going to bring us waves. The waves may be tiny or imperceptible to others. You know, it's the equivalent of, uh, I had mixed feelings when I used this analogy the first time, of the, you know, how you roll your eyes and go, when, when little things are annoying us, um, <laughs> And I told the story, and I'm going to tell it again and get myself in more trouble. Um, of um, I grew up with a mother who went, and that was the clear disapproval of me, her child. And there was a lot more behind that that was loaded. Um, so it was, I grew up in a Jewish family, and that was kind of part of the culture. Um, not just in a Jewish family, it's in my direct experience, Italian families, and I'm sure in many other, but there was mother going and communicating. And the first time uh, I met um, this really, this girl I was deeply attracted to, who was 17 and I was 18 at a party that I never went to parties, but I went to this one and met her. And I looked at her and I think, well, she's from Sweden because that's how she looks uh, with these green blue eyes and this perfect skin and no makeup and oh and we danced and we talked and um i drove her home that night on my little lambretta and um said well i'm jewish but i guess i'm gonna marry a non-jewish girl and i knew that the first night and she knew it also and then on the next date she went and i said well maybe she's jewish <laughs> Here I am in trouble again. <laughs> and she was, but she's now Buddhist. Obviously, I married her. <laughs> so anyway, where are we? <laughs> you know, no matter what our plan is, um, shit happens. <laughs> and the waves are small and large, and our life changes. 
and there's no guarantees that we have except whatever we plan for is our life, that that plan is not going to survive contact with reality. And what is reality? Reality is relationship. You know, so those of you who have ever been to a long sitting or a zazenkai or a sashen and come out with your mind calm and, you know, whew, really feels good and peaceful, you know, and the first time you encounter something in relationship, you know, what happens? There it goes. You know, uh, it's relationship that we struggle with. And that includes a relationship with ourself, of course. And this is the reality we know. We live this. You know, we all struggle with this simply because we're human beings and it's, it's what we have to struggle with. And all human beings, from a Buddhist perspective, are karmic beings. I mean, we're all here due to cause and effect. You know, I started by talking about how this temple, karmically, is here. Why it's here. So we live within this world, this karmic world, and manage within our personal lives and our personal karma and the karma of the society we're in, the karma of the nation that we're in, the karma of this earth, and its responsiveness to what we do to it. And karma, cause and effect, um, is a way of offering us an understanding of the, the way I look at karma. It's an understanding of the different energies. So I look at karma as an energy. I don't look at it as so much, this is how I personally look at it, as a, a thought, a thing, um, cause and effect. I look at it as an energy. And that every action that we do, an action is defined as a thought, thought, think about that, and all your thoughts, a, uh, an action, something we physically do or don't do, uh, and speech. So those, that's how the Buddha defined karma. So those create an effect. And I look at those as creating energies that have, that's the effect. In Sanskrit, karma means a creation or our action. And from a Buddhist perspective, Buddha activity is enlightened energy. You know, another word for compassion. Karmically confused ways of living is also energy and an energy that perpetuates suffering. And it's interesting because karma itself is what I call clean. It doesn't judge. There's no judgment of good or bad. It's just there's a certain mechanicalistic property to it where this happens and that occurs. So using the energy of our practice is karmically powerful and tends to lead to an ongoing exploration of what is truly... what. It, what it means to truly live a compassionate life and a life that arises out of what we call prajna. And prajna means non-dual wisdom, a life of wholeness. And that's the karma of practice. In a sense, nothing special about it. You, you practice seeing into your own mind and you begin to see what that mind is. There's no such thing as mind. Mind is just open, clear clarity. That's mind. Every situation, every moment is bounded by cause and effect. And it's dependent on some previous cause and some previous effect. And all of it is energy. 
which means that it's not immediately visible to our eyes, and yet it affects endlessly and ongoingly all things. So think of seeing and understanding your particular situation from a dualistic perspective. You see, think, act, speak, and that action goes from here to there. From me to you, from you to me, separate things. So that's duality. And of course, it's pretty much how we live, right? Pretty much how we understand our lives and other lives. And in living that way, I'm here, you're there, we fixate. Thinking in a fixed way, there are two things, or many more than two things aside from me. There's only one thing that really matters, obviously, in this way of thinking, right? Me. And that makes it very challenging to appreciate the wholeness of things, the interbeing of things, when we only look at it from the perspective of two things of me, you, me in a sense versus you, in a sense that's a zero-sum game, meaning, you know, what I get, you don't get, what you get, I don't get. And, you know, the root of suffering is that fixation, that attachment, which just means that we, inhib- that we attribute to things a fixed reality that they do not, in fact, possess. So, what doesn't change? Name one thing that doesn't change from our thoughts and our mind, so-called mind. Have you ever had a thought that that was the only thought you ever had? You never have another thought or a feeling to anything. So anything is already change. So this dualistic perspective is the process of action. And it can't rest in wholeness. It can't rest in one-pointedness. It can't rest in a mind that is conscious and aware and awake. Dualism can't exist in that perspective. And so, you know, the traditional way of, of in Buddhism, of uh, kind of picturing that is through the 12-link chain of causation, where um, you could pick it up at any link, but Birth creates a whole series of things leading to death, and that cycle goes on and on and on and on. And so that's the karma of duality. That's the karma of self-ishness perspective. So there's intense relationship based on separation and attachment. And these relationships are karmic energies and vibrations that just spread out, out and out and out beyond the immediacy of what just seems to be happening here and now. And so we have no idea of the karma that we create when we do an action, when we say a word. You know, in, in what hopefully is a good sense, we record this and it goes out on the, on the web. And so more than occasionally, I'll hear feedback from people uh, on how, usually, you know, they heard something in a talk, they're not necessarily students, it's out there on the web, and how much that affected them. And then also I'll hear something else. The equivalent of... (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you consider the karmic effects of 
our speech, our actions, our thoughts, and look at the world with its millions and billions of people in ongoing relationship based on duality, then individually and collectively, we can relate to how the world appears. You want to know why it is the way it is? This is why. And it's not hard to imagine that. It's not hard to to see the greed, anger, and delusion in the politics of the world and the people with, quote, power and money um, and the reactions to that that also can be grounded in ignorance even with the best of intentions. And ignorance is a particular uh, Buddhist term that means not understanding the dualistic relationship that we're encased in. So good karma as well as bad karma is a way of maintaining this dualistic fixation. You know, the good karma, bad karma is all relative, right? You know, and you can, there are very well-known stories about, you know, the, um, just off the top of my head, um, you know, the the ancient story of uh, a couple has a son, he's crippled, you know, the army comes along drafting everyone, but they don't take him because he's crippled. Good karma, you know. And then um, something else happens, and because he's crippled, he can't save his mother from some catastrophe. Bad karma, you know, and on and on. All karma's relative. Karma doesn't know from good or bad. We know from good or bad. And the same is true in practice. You know, look at our practice. You know, I got in to see the teacher. No, I didn't get in to see. I passed the koan. I didn't pass the koan. My zazen was so good. Isn't that wonderful? My zazen is so bad. Isn't that terrible? Um, you know, and on and on and on. So good karma is what I like and feel benefit from. In other words, good karma supports my sense of a separate self. I like it. It's good. Thank you. And bad karma is that which threatens our view of ourself. That's terrible. And, and that view of ourself is a, th- a threat to our dualistic fixation and attachment, right? That's ourself. So anything that threatens that, do you know that you're sitting here doing a practice which threatens that? Are you aware of that? This is the most threatening place for your sense of self that you could possibly put yourself in. Do you know that? And interestingly enough, when the practice gets deep and begins to come face to face with the places that we've so deeply attached to that create our sense of self, and then the practice, when there's a certain maturity in practice, demands that we look into that, such as the koan mu, or later on, the life circumstance that doesn't fit neatly into our ideas of ourself. Well, now it becomes real. Now it's just not an idea. Now we're really facing a constructed sense of self. And our usual machinations and strategies are not going to work here. We're not going to be able to bypass this in the name of practice. It gets really real. Is this what you want sitting here? You know, this is a question we ask people who want to enter as a student. Is, is this really what you want? Trump Rinpoche said, karma is like a game of chess. Wherever you are on the board at this moment is the result of your past actions. But whatever you're going to do in the next moment depends on your present situation. 
Your present situation is yours. That's your freedom. The present situation is partially influenced by the past. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Clear? But at the same time, the present is also influenced by the future, which is open space and freedom. Your options at this moment are limitless. The only reason you may not think that is because we've self-conditioned ourselves to be dualistic, to be susceptible. And it's not a fault. It's just everybody's deeply conditioned by the circumstances of how we got here. Nobody's free of that. No matter how long they've practiced or no matter what they've realized. The wonder of practice is that there's always more that we will face. So karma also refers to the enlightened activities of the Buddhas. Seen from this perspective, the quality of enlightenment is action. The quality of compassion is action. The activity of enlightenment is action. Well, what is enlightened action? It's unconditional action, freed from interdependency and cause and effect. Unconditioned. It just is. It just is. Just as that. When there's a chair and you go, you sit in it. When it's time to fold it up, you fold it up, put it in the corner. It's unconditioned. This is in contrast to the samsaric action that perpetuates suffering in its endless cycles, collectively and individually. So karma shows us very clearly we have freedom and that what we do is our own action and what we get is our own result. It's yours. But we can't know our karma. We can only see what our limited vision allows us to see. And this talk could probably go on a little longer, so make yourself as comfortable as you can. We have a limited vision. We can't divine our karma. Occasionally we get a glimpse. I mean, there are clear times, you know, the instant karma perspective. I spend a lot of time on a farm, which I've talked about a lot. And, you know, the old, this is, this is true. I mean, you don't pay attention and what you step in will squish. What you step on will come up and hit you in the face because it's you just stepped on a hoe, you know, and it, you know, that's, I call that instant karma. Wasn't paying attention. Now I am. And the Buddha said that, that, that nobody can know all their karma. And even a little bit is a lot. Yet when we look through a life long enough, and look back, we can see how many of our individual decisions karmically played out. We can see that. And at least when I look back, there's a, it feels right. You know, the, the pain that came out of my decisions, the joy that came out of my decisions, and almost never is it one or the other because those circumstances continue. So we're creating our future karma in these moments. And many of these moments which we create important karmic effects don't seem special at the time. Just an ordinary moment. You know, he turned down the street and met this person or didn't or, you know, or once in the little town that I live of Danville, which tiny little town, I stepped into the street, you know, in, a, in the proper way and a car came around and hit me, you know. 
How did, where did that come from? How did that happen? So the effects of our actions are unknowable from our present perspective. The law of unintended consequences has far greater effects on our limited views and clever perspectives than we can ever anticipate. I have enormous respect for that law of unintended consequences, that whatever I plan and do may or may not, usually may not turn out the way I think it will. But the other effects, holy shit. In Buddhism, the endless cycle of birth and death is samsara, the world of suffering. Our three poisons, greed, anger, ignorance, turn this wheel of life and death. Seeing into the three poisons is where samsara ceases. And so this koan presents us with our life. It's not just a fairy tale about a fox. Something more is going on. Your life is going on. A mistake, a response arising out of ignorance, and thus the far-reaching effect of unanticipated consequences. And yet we're all Buddhas, inherently. We're all endowed with all the wisdom of a Buddha. This is the awakened view of a Buddha, that every being has that inherent wisdom. So we sit on a razor's edge. Our ignorance, our desires, our passions, our small views framed by our cleverness and intelligence on one side, and our Buddha nature on the other side, our inherent wholeness and perfection on the other side. And affirming this for ourself, affirming our true nature for ourself is the point of practice and awakening. Making it real, making it ours, is the whole point of what we do here. And so we don't get to leave anything out of this life. We are human beings with our karma. We are human beings with our desires, with our ignorance and our passions on one side, and we're Buddhas on the other side. Now, how will you realize that? How will you manifest that? How do we live the 500 lives of a fox there were, we are all living now. That's what this Cohen is asking. All of us are living that. And I, I just want to mention, because I relate to foxes, even though about three weeks ago, fox entered our chicken house and killed all our foxes. Sad story. And some of those chickens we deeply related to. Traditionally, the fox is a sly, clever, and nasty animal. And in, from Chinese perspective, and maybe Japanese as well, it's even more weighted than that. It's a very negative creature. And so in choosing to sit sazen, to practice, we bring to light our fox body. We acknowledge it. This is our body. Our life is the reality of the choices we make. And the effects of those choices. We're making those choices. And we sit. We sit directly before the relative world that we know so well. And all of us experience happiness and sadness, living and death, grasping and fumbling, clumsiness and insecurity, confidence and egotism. All of us experience the ephemeral nature of this moment this ungraspable moment, even though we try and nail it down, we try and fix it, we try and make 
this moment and ourselves and you permanent. I'm going to make you permanent so I have a handle on you, so I can get what I want from you in some subtle and indirect way. And all of this within a bewildering world that we struggle to make sense of and to understand and to make work, and we can't. We can't. It just doesn't make sense. So we don't get to leave this relative world. But we can see into this moment of our life just as it is. We can do that. And in seeing just as it is, there's a freedom there. We're within the relative world, but not trapped by the relative world. Selflessness. We can see into our sense of self. We can practice that with uncertainty, with fumbling, with getting caught, with attachment, but we can practice that and see that. And from that perspective of practice, we can act with agency. We can get off our cushion and enter this world as a fox. So the invitation in practice is to live who you truly are as a human being with foibles and folly and our karma and our loving heart and compassion and generosity and our karma This life just as it is, just as you are, that is centered here, that is in your body, however your body is, that is in your mind. Does it sound difficult or impossible? Well, you're living the life of 500 lives of a fox. Here you are. (laughs) Maybe one way to go about this is to see how deeply you can see within yourself and how wholeheartedly you can live. When Baijong lectured in the hall, there was always an old man who listened to the teaching and then dispersed with the crowd. Baijong then asked him, who are you? The old man said, in antiquity, in the time of the ancient Buddha Kashapa, I lived on this mountain. A student asked me, does an enlightened person still fall into cause and effect or not? I answered him, they do not fall into cause and effect. And I fell into a wild fox body for 500 lifetimes. Now, in classical Buddhist teachings, enlightenment frees us from karma. Enlightenment frees us from everything. In the absolute, in the realization of no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, there is no karma. There is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No you, no me. That's the basis of this relative world. That's what the relative world rests on. Not nothing, but no thing. Buddhas are not subject to entangling karma. That's what makes a Buddha. And for us, who may not be Shakyamuni Buddha, but may be ourself and may practice and realize ourself, in the moments that we are practicing and realizing, we have the freedom from karma. That's the thusness of your being. There's no karma or no lack of karma. It's just thus. And so Shakyamuni Buddha was called the one who thus comes. Now, if you're going to take that in your mind and say it is what it is, good luck. It is not what it is. Nor is it something else. Good luck with that. So, you know, the classic Buddhist answer is, of course, the enlightened person is freed of karma. 
But Mahayana Buddhism and in Zen practice, to encounter the Absolute is not yet enlightenment. We chanted that this morning. If you say, yes, the enlightened person is free of karma, you're leaving something out. What's being left out? The Mahayana model is not the classical Shakyamuni Buddha. It's her. It's the representation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And the function of compassion is activity. It's not knowledge. It's not even insight, although we can easily get caught in words here. If you say Buddhas are not freed of enlightenment, are not freed of a karma, what's the point then of enlightenment? That's a good question. And it's one you might want to ask yourself, what's the point of realization? Ask yourself that in the most personal sense. What's the point of your practice if it's not to change your life, to be free of karma? So he said, I answered, they do not fall into cause and effect, and I fell into a wild fox body for 500 lifetimes. Do you know that right here, in this karmic room, in this karmic world, among all of us karmic people, is your enlightened mind? Are you young, vibrant, happy? Great. That's your karma. This is your present life. This is your 500 lives of a pox. Are you sick, unhappy, depressed, anxious? Great. This is the present life of your 500 lives of a pox. Either way, there are many more lives to come. Impermanence is reality. Now I asked the teacher to say something on my behalf. Bajang said, they do not ignore cause and effect. Now, you hear this koan, and you think, well, he said these words, big deal. But these are turning words. These are words offered when a student is ready, is at the tip, the cusp, the place where everything is dropped away, and a spark ignites something that is not a thing. What we have as this life is our consciousness. And as long as you're conscious, you have the ability to create karma. And karma is, in one sense, very simple. If this, then that. Cause and effect. Nothing, no one, nobody, no thing is excluded. When this goes away, that goes away. Whatever this the causes and conditions that make that up. When this disappears, whatever we're labeling it as, that disappears. So you're asked in your zazen to look, to see this for yourself, to see the thought. The thought arises. What's the karma of a thought? Well, in that present moment when a thought arises, the instruction is, let it go. But what happens if you don't let it go? Either because you're blind to it, you're asleep, you don't know. The karma of a thought is another thought. And another thought. And another thought. I just described one of your 500 lives as a fox. 
a lifetime of thought. Well, what happens if you see the thought and let the thought go? Very different karma. You see the thought and you let it go. And you see the thought and you let it go. And at some point you begin to see that this thing we call thought, ourself, has such an ephemeral existence, is so dependent on our thoughts. No thoughts, no self. Duh. Well, when there's no self, what is there? And maybe for the first time you get a glimpse of all that you truly are, which is not a thought, not a desire, not a thing. All that you are. So open your eyes, look. And wherever you look, you will see all that you are. So sit sazen, see this for yourself. Realize it for yourself. Study this for yourself. The the Buddha prescribed, study with a Buddha or a teacher representing a Buddha. Study the Dharma, the teaching. Study with the Sangha to support and help you. And the karma you will create is going to be very, very different because we are creating the reality we live through that karma. Have you ever thought of how much of your thoughts, your way of speaking and acting is like a puppet? The string is pulled, and you speak, you act, your hand moves, your mouth speaks, you cogitate some more furiously. Have you thought how automatic that is? Doesn't that annoy the shit out of you? Well, you have the power to do something about that, to see where that comes from. Where does that thought come from? You're creating it. That's your karma. And you don't have to believe this. You can check it out for yourself. That's the wonderful point of dedicated practice, is you get to see this for yourself. There's a poem that Mumun made from the case number two in the Mumun Khan that I pulled in. He said, not falling, not ignoring. Two faces, one die. Not ignoring, not falling. Hundreds of thousands of regret, regrets. Our karma always comes down to this. Not falling, not falling. No karma. I'm free of karma. Not ignoring the other side of that. Two faces, two different perspectives. A single die. Dice, a single wholeness to it. Not ignoring, not falling, hundreds of thousands of regrets. Not realizing this for yourself. The regrets are your karma, hundreds of thousands of them. And yet, even in not seeing into this, it still is not a problem. It's just our body our fox body. That's all. Always whole from the very beginning. Fox body, human body, nothing has ever been left out. Can you see this for yourself? Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit zmm.org.